This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Roundtable listeners. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Gravel, epidemiologist, family resident, and soon-to-be emergency medicine resident, and one of your now permanent co-hosts. I'm happy to introduce my co-host today, Max Deschner. Max is a resident in internal medicine from Western University. Max, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to be able to join you today in parsing some science. Okay, let's dive right in here, Max. What article are you going to be telling us about today? So I'll be sharing the article, Coronary Angiography After Cardiac Arrest Without ST Segment Elevation, also known as the COAC trial. It was published in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine in April 2019. Great, Max. Before we get to the bottom line here, any disclosures or conflicts from the authors or yourself? Nothing for myself. Um, The COAC trial was funded by AstraZeneca, Biotronic, a German biomedical technology company, and the Netherlands Heart Institute. The authors note that these groups were not involved in trial design or monitoring, nor selection of participating centers, study subject enrollment, or data analysis. Great, thanks. What's the bottom line here? So COACT concludes that delayed angiography does not compromise survival at 90 days in comatose patients who are successfully resuscitated after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without signs of STEMI. COACT was a prospective multicenter open-label trial that randomized 552 comatose patients who presented to the ED after return of spontaneous circulation following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without signs of STEMI and no obvious non-cardiac cause. And they were randomized to either a strategy of immediate coronary angiography versus coronary angiography delayed until after neurologic recovery. Everyone received PCI if it was indicated. And so 64.5% of patients in the immediate angiography group and 67.2% of those in the delayed group were alive at 90 days. Very interesting. Lots to unpack there. Tell me, why'd you choose this article? So for some background, ischemic heart disease is ubiquitous in Canada. In 2012, 1 in 12 Canadians over age 20 were living with ischemic heart disease, which is huge. And as one of the primary causes of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, ischemic heart disease is also obviously a leading cause of death in Canada. Patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest undergo complex treatment entailing targeted temperature management, hemodynamic support, EEG monitoring, and of course, consideration of coronary angiography. And back in the 1990s and early 2000s, primary coronary intervention, or PCI, uh, revolutionized the care of patients with myocardial infarction as the underlying etiology of their cardiac arrest. Studies in the early 90s helped pave a new path in management using PCI over thrombolysis. But that said, many outcomes post-cardiac arrest still remain suboptimal in a lot of cases, with many people dying before discharge and many having long-term neurological and cardiac consequences. I'd say we have good evidence that immediate PCI in patients with STEMI improves mortality, and thus this is obviously the standard of care. And this brings to mind that classic STEMI management scene in all those heart and stroke life support videos that we've probably all watched at one point or another. But what about when there is no STEMI, no ST elevation, in an arrest that could have a number of different cardiac etiologies? Beyond STEMI, we don't really have a great idea of who should be cathed, and cardiologists have actually been scratching their heads about this one for some time. Great, Max. Thanks for that summary. A number of landmark trials have looked at similar questions, albeit in different patient populations. How does COACT fit into the the greater picture here? You're absolutely right. Uh, Several randomized control trials have looked at timing of angiography in patients with ACS who don't have cardiac arrest nor STEMI. Studies like FRISK-2 and Tactics timmy 18 demonstrated benefit of early angiography in high-risk patients with unstable angina and NSTEMI. But while these trials demonstrated the potential value of early intervention, particularly in unstable angina and NSTEMI, we didn't really have a good sense of what early meant. 
more recently, the 2009 TIMAX trial only revealed a reduction in the primary composite outcome of death, MI, or stroke at six months in high-risk unstable angina or NSTEMI patients who underwent early versus delayed coronary angiography. Roughly two-thirds of TIMAX patients were not high-risk, and so the vast majority didn't actually need early intervention. And so all of this said, I wanted to highlight COACT, our study today, as it is some of the first randomized evidence to support delaying angiography in patients surviving out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who do not have ST elevation. The authors of COACT actually hypothesized that immediate angiography would decrease the time to PCI in indicated patients and therefore potentially save more myocardium. Previous observational data actually suggested that early catheterization might benefit patients after cardiac arrest without ST elevation. So on the surface, at least, COACT looks to give us a little more ground to stand on in terms of feeling empowered to both focus on post-resuscitative measures like targeted temperature management and watchful waiting, rather than rushing certain patients to the angio suite to undergo angiography and PCI. And I'd say perhaps there are some sleep benefits hidden in there too for our friendly neighborhood cardiologists. As we'll see though, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is quite different from a STEMI, and not everything that arrests is caused by coronary artery disease. Awesome. Eloquently said, Max. Let's get into the grit here. Tell me about the study design. So as mentioned, John, COACT was a randomized, open-label, multi-center trial involving 19 Dutch hospitals. Uh, The study randomized 552 patients in a one-to-one manner to either immediate or delayed angiography. 280 patients were allocated to immediate and 272 patients to delayed. So basically, the patient would present to the ED after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with return of spontaneous circulation, or ROSC, and without signs of STEMI or a non-cardiac cause of their arrest. Quite a mouthful. They would be randomized to either immediate angiography and possibly PCI, which was done as soon as possible, or they would be randomized to delayed angiography, which generally occurred after neurologic recovery and tended to be following the uh, discharge from the ICU. All things considered, those who were randomized were actually fairly stable. This was an intention to treat analysis, meaning that if you get randomized, you get analyzed. And in COACT, this would theoretically help avoid misleading artifacts that arose due to things like crossover of participants from immediate to delayed angiography, mainly due to things like suspected subarachnoid bleed or epidural bleeding, for instance. Coronary angiography and PCI were performed based on local standards. But that said, they all included all unstable coronary lesions, defined as over 70% stenosis and the presence of characteristics of plaque disruption, things like lesion irregularity, dissection, haziness, or thrombus. All patients received a heparin-loading dose or bivalirudin, aspirin, and a P2Y12 inhibitor before PCI. In the case of multivessel disease, they calculated the syntax score to help guide between PCI or cabbage. And if cabbage was determined to be the treatment of choice for a patient in the immediate invasive group, it was actually delayed until after neurologic recovery. Finally, in patients randomized to the delayed group, any signs of cardiogenic shock, recurrent life-threatening arrhythmias, or recurrent ischemia meant they underwent urgent angiography. Great. Straightforward design. Apart from the primary outcome of survival at 90 days, what else did they look at? Uh, The key secondary outcome was survival with good cerebral performance, with either mild deficits or moderate cerebral disability at 90 days. And they define this as a cerebral performance category scale of 1 to 2. Moderate disability meant the patient could still carry out independent activities of daily living. There were a number of other secondary outcomes, including survival until hospital discharge, neurologic status at ICU discharge, which was based on the Glasgow Coma Scale, and again, the Cerebral Performance Category Scale, as well as troponin and CK levels, AKI, or the need for renal replacement therapy, time to optimal hypothermia, 
and recurrence of ventricular tachycardia resulting in defibrillation or cardioversion. Awesome. I'm seeing it. Tell us about the study population. So inclusion criteria included age over 18 years old, comatose patients with a Glasgow coma scale under eight with return of spontaneous circulation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, as well as a shockable rhythm, meaning ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. Patients were excluded if, among other things, they had signs of STEMI, including a new left bundle branch block, or isolated ST depression in leads V1 to V3 due to a true posterior infarct. Other exclusions were cardiogenic shock characterized as hemodynamic instability that was non-responsive to medical therapy and a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 millimeters of mercury for over half an hour, as well as an obvious non-coronary cause of arrest or known severe renal dysfunction, which they defined as a GFR of less than 30 mils per minute. Drum roll, Max. Tell me what they found. All right, John. So first for the primary outcome there was no significant difference between the groups. So they found 64.5% versus 67.2% of patients in the immediate and delayed groups survived to 90 days with an odds ratio of 0.89. The authors partly attributed these fairly good survival rates to the fact that most arrests were witnessed and time to ROSC was generally within 15 minutes. And for the key secondary outcome, there was no significant difference between groups with regards to survival with good cerebral performance at 90 days, with 62.9% versus 64.4% of patients surviving in the immediate and delayed groups, with an odds ratio of 0.94. Of the 280 and 272 patients randomized, 97% and 65% received immediate or delayed angiography, respectively. The number in the delayed group was actually so much lower because 38 patients in that group received urgent angiography due to cardiogenic shock, recurrent life-threatening arrhythmias, actual STEMI, or recurrent ischemia while awaiting the cath. So they were actually pretty unstable. And the median times from arrest to angiography were 2.3 hours in the immediate cohort and 121.9 hours in the delayed cohort. I should mention that acute thrombotic occlusion was actually only found in 3.4% of patients in the immediate group and in 7.6% in the delayed group. In each of these groups, 24.2% of patients underwent PCI, 6% and almost 9% underwent cabbage, and 61.5% and 67.5% underwent pharmacologic or conservative treatment following angiogram, again in the immediate and delayed groups respectively. More than 90% of patients in each group underwent targeted temperature management, but those in the immediate angiography group had longer times to target temperature than those in the delayed group, which turned out to be 5.4 hours versus 4.7 hours with an odds ratio of 1.19. And I think that was one quite interesting and important finding. I agree. I also think the 3.4% of acute thrombotic inclusion, the only 3.4% is actually quite impressive. Tell us more, Max. Any critiques? So I'd say on the surface, the results of COACT are striking, uh, but for a very specific population, and I think that's kind of the key here. It seems that we can hold off and wait for some time before taking out-of-hospital non-ST elevation cardiac arrest patients to the cath lab. However, I think we actually need to look at these results with some caution. If you look closely, you'll see that acute unstable coronary lesions were seen in less than 20% of the total study population, and interventions were performed in less than 40%. And while 64.5% of those who underwent immediate angiography had coronary disease, only 5% of those study participants had actual thrombotic occlusions, and the majority had stable coronary disease. The corollary is that a good chunk of the patients probably weren't actually affected by the timing of angiography, and maybe not even affected at all by angiography being done in the first place. 
Second, I think this is a good example of a study where it's very important to look at the patient population studied. COACT is not applicable to patients with cardiogenic shock, nor severe renal dysfunction or ST segment elevation. And these are all common characteristics of people presenting to hospital following cardiac arrest. And the last thing I want to mention is the study had what looked to me to be a fairly high dropout rate due to withdrawal of consent. 2.5% of randomized patients were not assessed for this reason. And I think this speaks to the challenges of doing a study on acutely ill patients where a lot of the logistical work actually needs to be done after management. Which makes sense, right, if you put yourself in that situation. On balance, Max, weighing the strengths, the weaknesses, what are your thoughts on this study? So I would say I think one of the interesting takeaways of the study is that it helps us recognize the importance of post-resuscitative measures in out-of-hospital non-ST elevation cardiac arrest. We all know that mantra, time is muscle, but I think this study highlights the importance of time as brain, or achieving targeted temperature control to support brain recovery. Cathing and cooling are in some ways competing priorities, but we do know that neurologic injury is the most common cause of death in these patients. And in this study, in fact, patients who died were three times more likely to die from neurologic injury than from a cardiac cause, which is pretty impressive. So COACT may push us to actually sideline immediate angiography in those with no ST elevation and who are hemodynamically stable in favor of things like targeted temperature control. As a side note, I do want to mention that as a side note, the authors speculated that the delayed achievement of target temperature in the immediate angiography group might actually have weakened the benefits of immediate catheterization and PCI. Overall, I think the key lesson with COACT is that an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is much different than a STEMI as not all of these arrests are caused by coronary artery disease, and even if they are, as yet, there's really no good evidence that early revascularization changes outcomes. More so, just because you might find a culprit artery that's occluded in some out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients, it really doesn't mean that early intervention changes that outcome. I think looking forward, uh, the next step will be to reflect on this data and determine who specifically may benefit from immediate angiography. The authors did a subgroup analysis of the COAC trial, and they found that patients over age 70 and those with a history of coronary artery disease actually appeared more likely to benefit from immediate angiography than those who were younger or had no disease at all. But I think it's also important to remember that we should tread very carefully around the purported conclusions of subgroup analyses. As a favorite cardiologist of mine once said, subgroup analyses should be hypothesis generating and not practice changing. All right, John, your turn. Tell us about the study you're highlighting today. Great. So I'm going to be talking about a paper published in The Lancet by Roger and a long list of authors for the partner study group just a few weeks ago titled Risk of HIV Transmission Through Condomless Sex in Serodifferent Gay Couples with the HIV Positive Partner Taking Suppressive Antiretroviral Therapy, Partner, which I'll refer to as going forward, Final Results of a Multi-Center Prospective Observational Study. This study was funded by the National Institute for Health Research, and I'd like to draw attention to the significant number of financial disclosures from a number of authors on the last page of the paper. I actually heard about this on the radio driving to work like two weeks ago. Timely stuff, John. What is the bottom line for the article? So again, this was a multi-site prospective observational study tasked to evaluate the risk of HIV transmission through condomless sex in serodifferent gay couples with the HIV-positive partner on suppressive therapy. Essentially, between September 15, 2010, and July 31, 2017, 972 gay couples were enrolled, of which 782 provided 1,593 eligible couple years of follow-up, with a median follow-up of two years. During those eligible couple years of follow-up, couples reported condomless anal sex a total of 76,088 times, with 15 new HIV infections occurring during the eligible couple years of follow-up. 
but none were followed in a genetically linked within couple transmissions, resulting in an HIV transmission rate of zero. Yep, zero. That's quite the uh, conclusive result. I'm naturally a bit pessimistic of uh, such strong results, John. Tell me honestly, why is this study important and why did the authors set out to study this in particular? So from what I could find, and, and the authors tend to agree, there's very limited data on this subject, but previous studies, including one RCT and several observational studies, provided estimates of risk of HIV transmission through sexual intercourse in the context of virally suppressive antiretroviral therapy. But it's important to note that most studies have been on heterosexual serodifferent couples with significant levels of condom use. Some evidence on transmission risk in gay men was provided in the first phase of the partner study and in the opposites attract study. But as the authors point out, as a reason for the phase of partner phase two, which we're talking about today, follow-up in these studies was not sufficient to exclude a significant upper limit of risk around the study estimates of zero transmissions in gay men. So this study is unique in that it exclusively is looking at zero different gay couples in which the HIV-positive partner is on virally suppressive therapy and condoms are not being used. Unique indeed. All right, methods time. Tell us about the study design and when and where did it take place? Give us all the details, John. As mentioned, the partner study was an observational multi-center study of zero different couples who before enrollment were not always using condoms and the HIV positive partner was on ART. Phase one of the study recruited and followed up both heterosexual and gay zero different couples from September 15, 2010 to May 31st, 2014. But from June 1st, 2014 to July 2017, the second phase of the study, what we're discussing today, recruited exclusively gay male zero different couples only. Couples were recruited from 75 clinical sites in 14 European countries. Participating clinical staff asked HIV-positive patients on ART if they had recent condomless sex with an HIV-negative partner and if they wished to take part in the transmission study. Zero different couples, HIV-positive men, on ART with their HIV-negative male partner were eligible to take part if both partners were aged 18 years older, the partners reported having penetrating sex with each other without condoms in the month before enrollment, and the HIV-positive partner expected to remain on ART. Data were collected at baseline and then every four to six months during study visits using self-completed questionnaires on typical stuff, sociodemographics, self-reported adherence to ART, frequency and type of sexual activity between the partners since the last visit, symptoms and diagnosis of other sexually transmitted infections, and then, notably, use of PrEP or PEP and injection drug use. HIV-negative partners were asked if they had condomless success with anyone other than their HIV-positive partner in the study since their last visit, and the HIV zero status of other partners if it was known. For the HIV-positive partner, ART regimen, CD4 cell count, and current and recent plasma HIV RNA loads were recorded. Great explanation. And I see that they were followed for an average of two years, which is pretty significant, I'd say. John, tell us about the study population. 972 gay couples were recruited, 477 of them during partner one. By the end of the follow-up in April 2018, a total of 2,072 couple years of follow-up had been accrued with an estimated dropout rate of 25 per 100 couple years of follow-up. The main reasons for dropping out of the study were that the couples broke up 43% of the time or one or both partners moved away. 479 couple years of follow-up were ineligible for inclusion in the analysis, the main reason being no condomless sex reported or use of PEP or PrEP. The median age was 38 years in HIV-negative participants and 40 years in HIV-positive participants. At baseline, HIV-positive partners have been on ART for a median of 4.3 years. Self-reported adherence to ART was high, with 98% of the 753 HIV-positive partners reporting adherence of 90% or more of the study time. 
698 of 747 of the HIV-positive partners correctly self-reported at baseline whether their viral load was undetectable or not, which is actually quite impressive. Mm-hmm, indeed, yeah. So uh, I'd say we have a good grasp of who these patients are. This is obviously an observational study, but run me through the data, and of course your favorite, how they analyzed it. The primary analysis was estimation of the incidence rate of HIV transmission through condomless anal sex, calculated as the number of phylogenetically linked HIV infections, essentially transmission from the HIV-positive study index partner to the HIV-negative partner, that occurred during the eligible couple years of follow-up, divided by eligible couple years of follow-up. Real straightforward. Couple years of follow-up were periods of time defined by HIV tests and corresponding questionnaires on sexual behavior in the HIV-negative partner. These couple years were eligible for inclusion in the analysis for the study if couples had condomless sex during that period. Pepper PrEP was not reported by the HIV-negative partner during that period, and the most recent plasma RNA viral load in the HIV-positive partner was measured to be less than 200 copies per milliliter, and within the past 12 months at all points measured in the period. Great. Straightforward analysis. I actually really like figure one in the article, showing the linked within-couple HIV transmission rates stratified by different sexual behaviors. It's actually pretty impressive. John, what about adherence to the ART in the HIV-positive partner? Great question, Max. During all couple years of follow-up, very few, 37 of the 779, of the HIV-positive partners reported that they missed ART for more than four consecutive days. For 92% of eligible couple years of follow-up, adherence was more than 90%, according to the HIV-positive partner. And just a little background information on what they were actually taking. Most HIV-positive partners were on ART regimens containing three or more drugs, with just a small percentage, less than 10%, taking either um, two drug regimens or monotherapy. Okay, nice. I feel like our listeners probably have a good grasp of who was included in this analysis, uh, the outcome, and then obviously how it was analyzed. Uh, Tell me what they found. So, in total, couples reported having condomless anal sex approximately 76,088 times during eligible couple years of follow-up, as you described as shown in figure one. The median number of times couples had condomless sex was 43 times per year. 15 of the initially HIV-negative partners became HIV-1 positive during eligible follow-up, but there were no within-couple phylogenetically-linked transmissions. 13 of those 15 individuals provided information about their presumed source of HIV infection, of whom 10 reported recent condomless sex with men other than their study partner. Viral sequences were recovered successfully from all couples, of like the 15 that became positive. All new infections were phylogenetically unrelated to the initial HIV-positive partner's virus. With no linked transmissions, the estimated rate for transmission through condomless anal sex with a positive partner on ART with an HIV viral of less than 200 copies was, again, zero. Wow, these are profound findings. I'm impressed. Apart from the results, John, are there any other interesting aspects of the study you actually wanted to comment on? Apart from the results, Max, the results are so cool. (laughs) Again, among the 782 zero-different gay couples followed for almost 1,600 eligible couple years, which included more than 76,000 reports of condomless anal sex, we found zero cases of within-couple HIV transmission. So what does this mean? This provides equivalence of evidence for gay men as for heterosexual couples that indicate that the risk of HIV transmission when HIV viral load is suppressed is effectively zero for both anal and vaginal sex in this case. The authors draw attention to one aspect of the study that makes it rather unique in the body of literature and that they only recruited couples that had already chosen not to use condoms. And in the primary analysis, they only included periods when condoms were not used and with no use PrEP or PEP by the HIV negative partner. Uh, This actually just struck me now, John, but did they look at other STI transmission rates? Another great question. About a quarter of HIV positive and HIV negative partners reported having another STI during follow-up. Very interesting. 
So this study both affirms that undetectable equals untransmittable, and though not objective of the study itself, that condomless sex is highly associated with spread of other sexually transmitted infections. Are there any important limitations of this study that we haven't really discussed yet? Right. So undetectable equals untransmittable, but a quarter of people in the study getting at least one other STI during a two-year period. From a limitation standpoint, the obvious one here is that it was an observational study of self-reported sexual behavior. Patients could have been having sex with many partners and not reporting it, though naturally you would think this would have increased the transmission rate and not biased towards the null. The authors draw attention to one limitation in the study that I would not have picked out. Most global HIV transmission is in young, non-white people aged less than 25 years, but the recruited HIV-negative partners were predominantly of white ethnicity, 89%, with a median age of 38 years. Plus, most of these HIV-positive partners have been on virally suppressive therapy for several years, so very limited couple years of follow-up during the initial months of ART, which is important. It's important because there's an appreciable and well-documented risk of HIV transmission during that time where there is a potential for incomplete viral suppression because it hasn't been checked yet or because they may not be as adherent during that period. And that really wasn't captured here at all. Clinically, it's therefore important after starting ART to use preventative measures such as consistent condom use or PrEP until viral load suppression in the blood is fully and sustainedly achieved. So important distinction. This is not just being on ART. It's being on ART long enough to have documented suppressed viral load. All great points. We've learned a lot today, John. On balance, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the partner studies? I mean, very cool study. And I've, as I've repeated many times, a very cool result. Trial doubt would be great. But as far as observational research, where the lack of randomization and lack of control of exposure would likely increase the risk of HIV transmission, this is pretty cool stuff. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, what would you say are the main take-homes for our listeners uh, from this study particularly? The results from the partner study support wider dissemination of the message that we've repeated a few times that undetectable equals untransmittable. Why is this important? Because those with HIV still have to deal with significant stigma, discrimination, and criminalization laws in a lot of the world. So to paraphrase, basically test your patients for HIV because it's a treatable disease. Uh, talk to them about ART, PrEP, PEP, all the acronyms. All things that frontline practitioners should be comfortable with, in my opinion. Thanks, John. That's awesome. Great, Max. So that brings our papers to a close, which means it's time for the Good Stuff segment. Max, tell our listeners what else you've been reading. So I wanted to mention a book I read earlier this year called Dope Sick, which was published last year by Beth Macy. In my mind, this is a super important account of the origins of the opioid crisis in America, and probably honestly the best I've seen out there. It paints a portrait of the individual lives affected from all angles, namely the families devastated by the actual overdoses, as well as the doctors, the street-level dealers, and of course the companies at the center of the crisis, like Purdue Pharma. Macy takes us to central Appalachia in the United States, where the crisis has really hit hardest. She quotes one physician in the thick of it all who describes the opioid epidemic as an urban story, a suburban story, and a rural story. Roanoke, Virginia, where much of her book centers on, is a town that's just big enough where all these three stories meet. And what struck me most was just how true this is, this urban, suburban, rural crossroads for some of the places hit hardest by the crisis in Canada, places like Brantford and even London, where I do my training, and which have two of the highest rates of opioid-related hospitalizations in the country. Looking back, I thought the book did a, a really honest job of blending the historical and human faces of the tragedy and really underlying how much this issue gets to the root of the social determinants of health, our economy, and really our politics. And how about you, John? Anything else come across your laptop screen or dinner table recently? 
I caught this interesting commentary piece in the Annals of Internal Medicine, the real good stuff, entitled, Should a Prison Salt Trial Be Federally Funded? And I'm going to quote here straight from the article. The group reached two conclusions. So this is a in May 2017, a group of some of the most prominent cardiology researchers in the world convened in Jackson, Mississippi. Only a large-scale clinical trial could determine whether restricted sodium intake reduces key health outcomes, such as stroke or MI, and prisoners might be the best population for this trial. If the pilot is successful, these researchers hope to secure federal funding to enroll thousands of prisoners, randomly assign them to a normal versus salt-restricted diet, and follow them for an extended period. However, the trial can or should receive federal funding remains unclear. So essentially, a group of some of the, you know, smartest cardiology researchers in the world. And their second conclusion is something that I've never really thought about. Prison trials. Interesting. Easy trial, really. Any trial. Population is easy to recruit and can be randomly assigned by housing module or institution. Follow-up is all but ensured at a substantially reduced cost compared to running a clinical trial out of any academic hospital in anywhere. But you know, truly, honestly, I've never really thought about this being a thing. I can't say I've really made up my own mind. On one hand, I don't think we should be doing anything harmful to those in prison. It should not be some sort of guinea pig trial population for us. But if such trial faced the same level of scrutiny to be approved as any other trial and participation was voluntary, it's not that crazy of an idea. Anyways, check it out. Thanks again for tuning in, listeners. And thanks, Max. Welcome back, listeners, to another special segment on The Rounds Table. I'm Shaliza Halani, the segment director of the show. This week, we have an exciting special segment in which we're interviewing Dr. Hans Clark, staff anesthesiologist and director of pain services and the medical director of the pain research unit at Toronto General Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Clark. Thanks, Shaliza. Happy to be here. Previously on the show, we've discussed opioids insofar as how drug overuse can lead to hospitalization and how we can implement harm reduction strategies. Today, we'll be looking at things from a different angle to address how we can best treat our hospital inpatients with opioid use disorders and how we can advocate for their needs. So let's get started. Firstly, it seems like there's many misconceptions related to how we manage pain in patients with acutely painful conditions or in the perioperative setting, for example, who are already on opioid agonist therapy, such as methadone or buprenorphine. What are the general guidelines around this and what adjunctive therapies work well? So those are all great questions, Shaliza. And I think that you know, we need to tease apart patients that are on opioid agonist therapy, such as methadone or buprenorphine. There are actually some brand new guidelines that have been made regarding buprenorphine and how we should treat some of these patients. And there's some misconceptions in particular that being on buprenorphine precludes you from having adequate pain control. And one of the things we often see is that when patients get hospitalized, is this thought that you have to stop the buprenorphine in order to get an opioid effect from this medication. And the, the thought has changed a bit. And so, you know, this depends on how high your dose is in terms of buprenorphine. So people on the higher doses, certainly you would expect that you might need to stop uh, or lower their medication. But for the most part, if you're on the lower doses of buprenorphine, we just suggest that you continue on. And if you need to add another opioid or an exogenous opioid, you just add it on top of that. Another option is to potentially increase the buprenorphine. Methadone is a much simpler story. You continue your patients on methadone throughout their acute pain crisis, and you can certainly add on other analgesics as needed for that population. Exactly. So how can we as physicians then advocate for good pain control for our patients and both in hospital and upon discharge, what would you say to people like myself or some trainees in terms of getting the best possible outcomes for our patients? So, you know, the opioid misuse or the if you have an opioid disorder patient, 
if they're willing to head down the OAT route, well, that's easy. So, you know, you start the one year OAT and you move forward. Now, if they're struggling with that decision and you are really deciding how do I help them with their pain and what's next for them? So you obviously can call on any of the, I guess, pain type services in the hospital and ask for help with adjunctive medications and things of that nature, all of the typical neuropathic pain meds and anti-inflammatories, all, all of the stuff I think you guys have some familiarity with. But more importantly, I think there needs to be some more knowledge of what those resources are for those opioid use patients. And I know we rely a lot on the social workers, but things like public works and needle exchange programs and, and all of these connected resources that some of this patient population has that we don't actually really give much thought to in the institution mm -hmm. would be helpful mm -hmm. for some of those patients. Mm -hmm. You know, my ultimate hope in, in our system today, especially in the midst of this opioid crisis and in the, and in the midst of all the synthetic fentanyl, is, you know, when these patients come in and they come through emerge, and we know how long they often wait before they land in the ward, we really need a system where we can have a player in between the emerge and the ward. Because what happens is by the time they're on the ward, and you really, you have, you've settled in on these folks, we probably ramped up their opioid dose to, you know, eight. 100 milligrams, let's say. And we had a window there where we could have even had a quick chat that started them on some opioid agonist therapy, mm -hmm. like a, like a suboxone mm -hmm. for, you know, four to eight milligrams. We take them, take that withdrawal completely away. And these people might actually buy in there if, they, if they're willing to have that initial dose. And sometimes mm -hmm. they might. By the time we have them on the ward and they're ramped up to these high doses, and then you call for us, the patient's now, you know, on a different path. Mm -hmm. They've had their opioid. They're back to where they want to be. They don't want to hear about all this opioid agonist treatment therapy stuff. And we miss a beautiful window to intervene with even, you know, 20% of these folks. That would mm -hmm. be a big win for some of them and change their course, hopefully, mm -hmm. significantly. So I think something we were talking about earlier was having the transitional pain services here, which is unique to the hospital. What can you tell us about the roles of this team and the advantages that it brings? Sure. I mean, we started this service in about 2013. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a pain physician, I'm a pain researcher, and an anesthesiologist. And so the, the goal of the service when it was created was to figure out what are those risk factors for people that have an acute pain condition and how they develop a chronic pain condition. And that was really the research program that we were trying to study. But given that we had the opioid crisis and the ministry was looking for potential solutions, and there was a lot of light being shown on diversion and post-op prescribing and the possibility that we ramp up patients two, three times. And that's what we do institutionally. And we've had a big pass as institutions for the past decades where People come into the hospital, they walk out, and they look very different. And it was no different in the perioperative setting where we ramped up. If you came on on 50 milligrams of an opioid, you left on 150 milligrams. Mm -hmm. And then the poor primary care doc, who the media is just blasting, sits and, and see, receives this patient says, well, this wasn't the person that walked out of my yeah. office. And, and then how do they deal with that? And so we had a unique opportunity to put those services together. And so we've developed a lot of alternative strategies. Uh, we've brought a lot of the Eastern medicine practices, you know, mindfulness. We do hypnosis. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a physiotherapy and an acupuncture bent. And we start to talk to patients about, the, you know, what is your opioid actually doing for you? Mm -hmm. It is still the best medication we have from an acute pain standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that can't be undersold. Mm -hmm. But once you are moving beyond three to six months of using an opioid, you're really running into that chronic non-cancer pain scenario. Mm -hmm. And that's where we've really misused and not followed patients appropriately. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the proud things of, you know, doing some of these things and, you know, hypnotizing people in the hospital and, and doing act-based therapies, other services started to say, whoa, we want some of that. And mm -hmm. so how did we, how we figured, you know, with the addiction bent that we were now dealing with, a lot of patients where we're helping them wean their opioids, we've gotten them, you know, off their opioids. Some people, 25% of the folks that came through our service in our last publication that were on 
their chronic opioid before hospitalization decided that they didn't need their opioid anymore. And so, you know, those are powerful types of results. And we saw an opportunity to expand it into the medicine ward. And so we have an addiction nurse specialist now, an MP, who we're trying to integrate a bit more to help with some of these pain addiction mm-hmm. patients. And the fact is, pain and addiction do coexist. It's something that the pain world resisted talking about for the longest time. And it's not one in four, but about 15% of our patients using opioids probably will struggle with an opioid uh, use disorder at some point. And so Mm -hmm. enough so that we really just need to have a better roadmap in terms of identifying these people Mm -hmm. and services to help them. And it's one of the big gaps of all institutional care, if you ask me. Well, I'm really glad we're having this conversation and we're able to kind of share this information to our trainees and our internal medicine audience. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you. Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.